Shalom to everyone, a, a warm welcome into the ICEJ's headquarters here in Jerusalem for our weekly webinar. We just thank you for joining us, people uh, coming from all over the world to uh, take up uh, another uh, important topic. We're on current affairs this week, and uh, we're talking about uh, the um, the rocket war, five-day rocket war last week with Palestinian Islamic Jihad firing 1,500 rockets at uh, Israel, uh, the IDF taking out some of their top commanders. And uh, the question is, did Israel win this round, this latest rocket war? Uh, is that a short-term win, a long-term win? And here, helping us to sort this out is our friend, General Amir Avivi. He's in the uh, IDF uh, Brigadier General in the Reserves, and also the founder and chairman of the Israel Defense and Security Forum, IDSF. And uh, we are so happy to have you with us, uh, General Avivi. I know you're in Washington right now, getting up early in the morning. You've got important uh, appointments on Capitol Hill today. Uh, but thanks for giving us some of your time to help us sort this out. A pleasure. Thank you very much for the opportunity. Yes. Now, we we had a, an escalation over Passover a few weeks ago, uh, and then you had rockets fired from Gaza. The next day, 30-some rockets fired from South Lebanon. The day after, six rockets from, from Syria. And, uh, you, you know, from three directions, sort of signaling that Iran's proxy militias in the area are ready for a multi-front war, that Israel sort of dreads happen to face rockets coming from all directions, but uh, how would they handle it? And at, coming out of that escalation, Iran, which is behind these groups, was, was saying, we have a united front of resistance against uh, the Zionist enemy and, and such. And so when this rocket war started last, uh, what was it, Tuesday night, Wednesday, uh, we were wondering whether we would get rockets not only from Gaza, not only from Palestinian uh, Islamic Jihad and Hamas, but also from Hezbollah in the north, maybe from Syria, maybe even from Iraq, but that didn't happen. It was just Israel and this smaller, uh, really committed Islamist terror militia. But tell us, what's, what happened here? What's your assessment? Did Israel really, can they claim victory here? How big of a victory? I know we've talked about it uh, a little earlier this week. Uh, and please, General B. Okay, so... Victory is an interesting uh, concept to uh, discuss, but maybe I, I'd like to start with what's happening now as we speak. There is the day of Jerusalem. The Jews are marching with their flags, crowds in the old city. And when the Jews really are showing proudness and conviction, and they, all of them, tens of thousands with flags marching in Jerusalem. Our enemies are, we are strong and are deterred. So it's exactly the opposite of what some people um, might say, that by being Jews in the land of Israel, we're provoking the Arabs. 
And uh, I think that uh, today there is a tendency of part of the society to say, you know, let's not provoke them, let's not uh, bring our flag, let let not march, let not uh, talk about Jerusalem Day, and, and it's exactly the opposite. When we show weakness, don't show, when we show don't show conviction, when we forget who we are, then our enemies feel the burden that they feel they can win, because it's all about the spirit. And uh, now we have tens of thousands of Jews marching in the day of Jerusalem. And uh, they're not shooting. And uh, they're deterred. Um, we have to understand the overall picture. Uh, a week ago, well, we had a big convention and Prime Minister Netanyahu spoke in our convention and he said something that is very accurate. He said 95% of everything we are experiencing talking about terror is Iran. Iran is building a force around us and inside us. Uh, around us, it uh, through its militias in uh, Lebanon with Hezbollah, in Syria, in Iraq, in Yemen, and also in Gaza. Both uh, Islamic Jihad and Hamas are Iranian proxies funded by Iran. All the know-how, the munitions, everything is Iranian. Uh, Iran is also investing a lot of money in Judea and Samaria, uh, in the different Palestinian fractions, and even in East Jerusalem, and incites and tries to carry out as many terror attacks. And this is why we see a coordination across borders. And uh, we see shooting from Lebanon, from Syria, from Gaza, and they are challenging us in many, many uh, fronts. Um, in the last few months, we have seen a dramatic decline in Israel's deterrence. Uh, this is due to two main things that happened that are connected. Uh, one is the, all this political turmoil around the, the judicial reform. Um, the youth huge demonstration all over Israel, uh, which gave our enemies the feeling that Israeli society is breaking down. Uh, Hezbollah has been talking for a long time about the fact that the, uh, Israeli society is like a spider's web. It looks strong from afar, but when you touch it, it's uh, weak. Um, and not only we had all these uh, demonstrations, and also, as part of this uh, process, there were uh, reservists uh, writing letters and saying, if uh, the judicial reform goes on, we will not serve. And then there was a crisis inside the army and the feeling that the army is breaking down and the army is not functioning and the Air Force is not in full uh, readiness. I remember and uh, two weeks ago interviewing in an Arab channel and the interviews I do there is usually um, me in the studio and then in the Zoom you have an Iranian, you have somebody from Saudi Arabia and so on. I, I never saw um, such a reality where they were all mocking Israel saying, that's it, you guys are done. Iran is going to win. Iran is strong. 
and so on. And it was clear that we have a huge, huge problem with our deterrence. And what the government and the army did, I think it was a very wise choice, and I'll explain it. They chose from all the different organizations that are challenging that, Islamic Jihad, Hamas, Hezbollah, the Iranians themselves, uh, they chose the weakest organization, Islamic Jihad, and also the one that is the, the most extreme and does a lot of trouble. And, and Israel uh, initiated a, an attack on this organization by surprise. It started by basically decapitating all the leadership of this organization in Gaza, the three main leaders. And then as the operation continued for a few days, we also decapitated all the guys that replaced this leadership. So in four days, six of the leaders were decapitated. And, and as a result, there is no leadership at the moment in Gaza to this organization. And we also destroyed most of their um, infrastructure. Um, and this is an operation where we got maximum deterrence with minimum price. Um, when Hezbollah and Hamad and the Iranians saw that the Israeli society is united around the operation, that the army is in full readiness, that the Air Force is in full, full capability, when they saw that we can decapitate the whole leadership of an organization in a few days uh, with amazing uh, intelligence and operational capabilities, the message is what we did to the Islamic Jihad, we can do to the Hamas and to the Iranians and to, and, and to Hezbollah. We can decapitate any uh, organization leadership whenever we want. And we are able to do it by surprise, and also we're not afraid to, to fight. Rockets need to be shot, we'll, we'll manage and we'll deal with that. Um, and we managed to really, in a few days, change the, everything in a moment, from zero deterrence almost to very high deterrence. And even now, when we are marching in Jerusalem, the Hamas said they might shoot, and in Lebanon they said they might shoot, we see that it's not happening so fast. It might happen, but it's not happening at the moment. It means they are deterred. And I can tell you that today, even some of the, the Israeli MKs from uh, the Likud uh, and uh, from Otsmayu did, they went up up, uh, up, up Temple Mount. And, and even this didn't get them to shoot. So obviously uh, there is deterrence. Now, the question is, what is winning? What, what, what does Israel perceive as, as a win? And Israel's strategy for, I would say maybe from Ben-Gurion times, but it's also uh, in the last uh, few decades, Israel uh, is, use, is using a doctrine that is very, very similar to Truman's doctrine known as the containment doctrine. Uh, when, when Truman um, uh, was building its doctrine against the, the USSR at the time after Second World War, um, decided to use a doctrine that says 
we are not going to challenge directly the USSR as a growing power. We are going to contain them. And this containment uh, is what brought the war in Vietnam and later on in, uh, in Korea. But the interesting part of the containment it was actually done by Reagan. Reagan knew that the U.S. economy is by far stronger and bigger than the USSR. Um, just if we compare today's U.S. economy to Russia, it's 20 times bigger. And what, what uh, a much more diversified. So what Reagan did, he did a military race with the USSR, and this military raid brought the collapse of the USSR without even needing to shoot one bullet. The USSR simply couldn't cope with this uh, race, and it collapsed. Israel, in the last decades, is doing something similar. And if you think about what happened in Israel in the last, let's say, 15 years, let's take uh, Netanyahu's uh, uh, even more, 20 years, since Netanyahu emerged as prime minister in 1999, 96, um, it's very similar. Uh, Israel is trying to avoid big wars. Israel is trying to enlarge the gap between operations in order to enable Israel to prosper, thrive, technology, tourism, economy, um, and um, when the economy is growing, there is more money. And when there is more money, there is also more money to invest in the military. Um, and Israel, in the last 20 years, has made a huge leap talking about how strong the economy is. Cannot even start to compare what was 20 years ago to now. How advanced we became technologically, how strong we became in the global arena with the relationship with the countries, relationships which brought the Abraham Accord. Our, our enemies recognized were strong and really uh, important to, to actually make peace with us. Um, and of course, the military advanced a lot in many ways. And when we look at the Arab world, in the same 20 years, we see the Arab Spring, we see collapse of countries, we see right Syria uh, collapsing uh, Egypt that uh, had a revolution, Libya that is not existent, Lebanon is hardly functioning as a country, Gaza, the situation is terrible, Iran with the internal uh, uprisal that are having in the economy of Iran uh, that is in a big problem. And, and when looking at all of that, the supporters of the containment doctrine are saying, you see, this is working. And this is win. So David, when you ask, is Israel winning? The way Israel perceives the win is that we constantly are getting stronger bigger, uh, stronger on the global uh, level, economy strong, uh, the army strong. And uh, at the same time, we see a decline 
in uh, the situation of our enemies. So this is a long-term win. It's not about uh, one operation and what was achieved in this operation. It's a long race. You know, we are 4,000 U.S. nation. We think long-term. Um, and this is what is perceived by Israel as a win. But what was true a few years ago, and this doctrine was 100% uh, viewed as the right path, I think we are all feeling that something is changing, that this doctrine is now challenged. Uh, so maybe by a miracle and with God's will, uh, this doctrine will actually succeed, meaning maybe we'll actually live to see a collapse of Iran, collapsing because of internal issues. Maybe we'll see Lebanon and Hezbollah going into civil war. Maybe we'll see uh, the Palestinians the day after Abbas going into Kelf and the, the Palestinian Authority collapsing. These things can happen. Uh, and then if this happens, every, every single person that is in favor of this containment doctrine will say, you see, it actually worked. But unfortunately, there is also a different scenario. And the different scenario is due to the fact that Iran has advanced, with all the challenges they are facing, has advanced a lot in the build-up of force of its proxies and also in its uh, aspiration to military nuclear uh, capabilities. In the last year, Iran is much more emboldened because the Russians have become dependent on Iran and the Russians are now backing Iran in a way we haven't seen before. The CIA chief uh, director said that already in December that there is a Russian-Iranian bloc emerging in the Middle East. We see China backing up economically uh, Russia and Iran. We see a decline in the American presence in the Middle East and the Chinese and the Russians challenging and the Iranians challenging uh, America in, uh, in the Middle East. This is strengthening Iran and emboldening them. And there is the build-up of force they're doing with Hezbollah, Hamas, and, and so on. And in this reality, uh, we might see uh, several scenarios that are not this desired scenario of a collapse, internal collapse of our enemies as we saw before in the Arab Spring, a Shia Arab Spring, let's say, and the scenario um, we might see is Iran feeling strong enough to surprise us in a, in a multi-front attack from Lebanon, from Hamas, from Syria, from Yemen. Uh, this might be very surprising because unlike um, armored brigades and divisions that you can see for months that they are getting ready to do something when you shoot rockets and missiles and drones. This can happen very fast and by surprise. And this is a, a very complex scenario uh, for Israel uh, that might also be coupled by a 
some kind of uh, internal uprisal, as we saw two years ago in operations, uh, Operation Guardians of the Wall. Uh, we in IGSF, we call this scenario a Yom Kippur scenario. Mm. Something surprising, dramatic, and uh, that might surprise us. Another thing that might happen, and this is also a big change from what we have seen in the last decades, is that we Israelis, we realize that time has come to attack Iran because of the nuclear pro program, because we have to prevent them from becoming nuclear. And then this is a six-day war scenario where we, by surprise, attack the Iranians. And as a result, the Iranians uh, retaliate by shooting at us from Iran, from Lebanon, from Gaza, Syria, Yemen, Iraq, from all these places. And again, it's the same kind of war, but we initiate it and, it's by, and, and we are the ones that they take them by surprise as we initiated now the attack on the, the Islamic uh, Jihad. Um, in both those, these scenarios, it's a war between Israel and Iran. Um, there is also another scenario, and this is why I'm, I'm in Washington now, and I've been here in February, in March, and, and again, uh, explaining again and again in, in Congress and Senate and with the administration that for the U.S., for the West overall, for Israel, the best thing that can happen is uh, America stepping forward showing leadership, building a coalition in the Middle East with Israel and the Sunni world with the Saudis and challenging Iran and posing a credible military threat. And what I said yesterday when I was in the Capitol Hill is that America can learn from what we did this week with Islamic Jihad because we had to build again deterrence and we could have attacked Hamas would have attacked Hezbollah, maybe the Iranians. But we took the Islamic Jihad, which was the weaker organization, and we attacked them. And we managed to build regional deterrence by really taking care of the smallest uh, organization. Now, the same goes for the U.S. The U.S. at the moment is challenging head-to-head -head the Chinese and, and bringing many forces to the Pacific especially to the area of the Philippines, building huge bases and um, putting a lot of effort in, in, in building a force in front of the Chinese, which might bring a global war. And uh, the U.S. is also uh, really, really involved deeply in the Russian-Ukrainian war and a lot of the capabilities are going into Ukraine. And what I said is, you know, Instead of challenging the Russian directly, in instead of challenging the Chinese directly, if you want to build your deterrence, go to the weak link. And the weak link is Iran. And challenge the Iranians. And this will deter the Chinese and the Russians because they feel the West has no willingness to fight. And if we challenge the Iranians, this will ba ba basically uh, affect also the Chinese in the Pacific and also Russia in, in uh, Europe. And of course, it will stop ex the expansion of China, Russia, and Iran in the Middle East. And it will stabilize the region because without stabilizing the Middle East, 
if we go into a regional war, this will affect the whole globe. This will affect the economies of every single country. Every American will feel that. Um, so one scenario is building deterrent, bringing, by the way, new peace agreements with Saudi Arabia and maybe Pakistan and Indonesia, um, uh, bringing uh, prosperity and so on. And the other scenario is, is chaos. It's the regional war. It doesn't matter if it's initiated by Iran or initiated by us. Uh, but uh, both scenarios are not good globally. They are less good also for Israel and for the overall region. And we see in the last few weeks, Saudi Arabia uh, renewed relations with Iran by China brokering this agreement, renewed relations with Syria. So the Middle East is changing very, very fast. The Sunnis are really uh, bothered by the fact that America is not showing leadership and they are reaching out to the Chinese and to the Russians. And this is not good. It's not their first choice. They would rather build a coalition with America and Israel. But they are keeping their options open. And talking about keeping options open, I met with uh, Ron Dermer a few weeks ago, a former Israel ambassador to the U.S. and, of course, minister and very close to Netanyahu. And he, one of the things he told me, told me that... Uh, very high official in the administration came to him and said, hey, Ron, you know, you Israelis, you are talking to the Russian, they do the same, meaning we will, for example, uh, give all of our major capabilities to Ukraine, but we're not, we're not doing it now because we want to keep good relations with the Russian. But if we have full American commitment, then we'll commit as well and will assist uh, much more dramatically with Ukraine. And this can shift the whole war in Europe. So there is a lot of advantages in uh, really the U.S. stepping forward. And one of the work we in IDSF are doing systematically, and this is something that uh, it's like an extension of the government. We're helping the government push this because this is important. Uh, the government has certain amount of time to push things. And even if they talk to somebody, maybe this somebody needs to hear the same thing like three, four times before he really gets it. And so we are helping here in meeting as many leading figures to really, really change the administration's policy and push the administration to show leadership in the, in the Middle East. So to conclude, I think we're living in you know very complex times. There is a big change. I'm not sure that what we did till now, talking about a containment doctrine, is something that will continue to work the way it did the last uh, decades. And we need to be also ready for an option of uh, a war. And we need to ask ourselves if we are going to war, what do we want to achieve? This will be an opportunity uh, to really uh, make huge changes in the situation. If we are going to work, we can uh, really uh, actually destroy dramatically many things that are bothering us now. 
in Lebanon or in uh, Gaza. And we need to be ready for this uh, scenario. They can say that the army moving very fast and enhancing the readiness. The, the government is, is uh, uh, really investing a lot in preparing the IDF and uh, the other organizations for such a possibility. Um, as I said, preventing a big war uh, is can be done, especially if America will, will be involved and I hope we manage to convince them to, to do that. Thank you, David. Yes, thank you, uh, General Avivi, for that uh, broad overview. I'd say global overview, historic as well, given some of the background to the Israeli army and Israeli political leaders, the, this uh, theory of containing the, the threat against them. Uh, and all the best there in Washington. You, you've got many on the left who are progressives and turning on Israel, celebrating uh, Nakba Day, even even Bernie Sanders, a Jew, celebrating Nakba Day or, or observing it. And then uh, on the right, some of the conservatives in the U.S. are turning isolationist. There's not a whole lot of bipartisanship. In well, I want to say something about Nakba. Yeah. I said it also yesterday in the a wonderful event in uh, in uh, Washington uh, with Susan. That's uh, branch, yeah, yeah. Every every great story has a hero and a villain, and the greatest story of all in mankind is the story of the Jewish people. And we have to remember something really simple: we are the heroes of our own story. And when people push ideas like Nakba, they are basically trying to say, you are not the heroes of your story, you are the villains of your story. And we are not. We are the heroes of our story. And I think that each time we hear, uh, especially I'm talking about the Jewish people, because you guys obviously understand well what I'm saying, really adopting uh, these Palestinian narratives you need to ask him a simple question. You need to decide. Are you the hero of your story or the villain of your story? That's it. That's the two options. There is no other option. And it's clear to me, to my organization, to most of the Jews, I think, that we are the heroes of our story. Okay. Very good. Okay. We only have a few minutes left with you because you've got to uh, rush to an appointment up in Congress. But... Uh, let me just ask you a couple of questions about this recent conflict, because I know a lot of people are interested in knowing how did Israel have such good, actionable intelligence, and then these precise capabilities to take out the, the three uh, main military commanders of Palestinian Islamic Jihad in that first opening shots of, of this conflict, and, and then three more be within the next uh, five days. So I think it's a combination of two things, very advanced capability to collect intelligence in many, many different kinds of intelligence. So you need really three things. You need to be able to collect the intelligence in, with different capabilities, whether it's human intelligence, visual intelligence, signal intelligence, 
Uh, we have many different kinds of uh, intelligence. Um, but the, I think the biggest advance is the ability, and this is AI capability, artificial intelligence capability, to fuse all these different sources uh, in order to get one clear picture and fuse it really, really fast. Because to targets today, uh, the time they, they live, are very short. So you need to be able to connect very fast, to fuse the information very fast, and also to be able to interconnect uh, between the intelligence and the operational capabilities in a way that they get all the information live and immediately can act upon it. And then you need the operational capability to be really, really precise and timely. And I think this is what Israel has been really advancing steadily in the last 20 years. I can tell you that 20 years ago, for example, trying to get the ground forces to speak with the air force was impossible. They couldn't speak uh, between each other. So at the beginning, we, we worked how can the air force command speak with the ground forces forces command, and today we are talking about how a single soldier can speak with an airplane. So it's a completely different level of interactivity and fusion of uh, information. And in this sense, there is no army in the world that can do what we can do. Yeah, it just seems like uh, you have this fusion of drone, surveillance drones, and maybe satellites in space and planes flying over and all the picture somehow is just integrated so that you know right where the target exactly the ability to bring everybody to see the same picture and understand it and and know what to do and choose the right operational capability in a second this is extremely extremely advanced and 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 complex and it's getting um getting better all the time, our ability to use the artificial intelligence and uh, to but really process been, things very, very been in the You've been in the war room, you've seen how quickly this, this operates. Yes, yes, it's amazing and it gets more and more automatic. And because you've got a concentrated uh, area to defend, it's probably more advanced than anything in the world, even, even the Americans. And of course, there are many capabilities, you know, which we cannot discuss on Zoom. Because yeah. I can tell you guys what it is, but then I have to kill you. <laughs> Maybe I'll... Okay, please spare us. Okay. Um, the Iranians are saying, you know, they're trying to boast that uh, they won because Israel, uh, the Iron Dome was failing. But uh, um, so they had to use the David slang, the intermediate missile defense. And I mean, just grasping at straws to, to find something they could celebrate uh, um, here. But for me, the big question is why did, did Hamas not join in? I, I believe Israel was communicating. We're not targeting you, stay out of it. And was uh, Iran disappointed with Hamas 
because they've been saying the whole resistance front is united. We're acting as one. We're going to open up a uh, multi-Trump war. And it didn't happen this time. I think this is an Iranian strategy. I think that Iran is trying to keep uh, Hamas and Hezbollah intact because they understand that as time goes by, and, and the chances that we'll attack them, they will want to attack us is growing. And if we now destroy Hamas capabilities, then, then Hamas will need, I don't know, two, three years to build up again. This will hurt the overall uh, readiness of Iraq. They don't want to waste this capability just on, you know, an occasional operational uh, opportunity. So I think this is Iranian strategy, and they're not disappointed. This is what they want. They want to keep Hamas and Hezbollah intact. And this is why they encourage Hamas to do terror attacks in Judea and Samaria, to use maybe some of its militias in Lebanon or in Syria, and not challenge us directly from Gaza because two years ago, we destroyed like 80% of Hamas capabilities. And then when they shot a few times, each time they shot a few rockets, we launched a major attack and, and destroyed capabilities that took them a long time to build and tens of millions of dollars, whether it's tunnels, whether it's rockets. And so they understand that they will pay a heavy price. They don't want to do that. Our problem is that because it, unlike Judea and Samaria, we are not operating on an everyday basis in Gaza, as long as they are not shooting, they are building their forces all the time. And then, then you know, when we will fight them, they, they will have a lot of capabilities. Okay, if we could take one more question. Uh, I think, uh, you know, Israelis themselves were pretty impressed with how surgical Israel was in taking out the decapitating, as you said, the military commanders of Palestinian Islamic Jihad. But some are saying, you know, it it's every year, every other year, you're having to face these rocket wars. They just keep recurring, and it's just going to be, you know, a few months uh, or so until the next one. And would, would it now be better to use some of the AI, some of the advanced capabilities have uh, Israel has, to now do some sort of ground operation in Gaza to really mow the grass there one more time and 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 really reduce the threat to Israel. Look, no, when we will fight them, they will have a lot of capabilities. Okay, if we could take one more question, I, I think uh, you know Israelis themselves were pretty impressed with how surgical Israel was in taking out the decapitating, as you said, the military commanders of Palestinian Islamic Jihad, but some are saying, you know, it, it's every year, every other year, you're having to face these rocket wars. They just keep recurring, and it's just going to be, you know, a few months uh, or so until the next one. And would, would it now be better to use some of the AI, some of the advanced capabilities have uh, Israel has to now do some sort of ground operation in Gaza to really mow the grass there one more time and 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 really reduce the threat to Israel. Look, a ground operation in Gaza is full scale war for months, if not years. And I, I don't think it's something that uh, brings uh, an advantage to, 
to, to Israel. I think that the way at the moment, the long term, Israel wants to overcome Gazan capabilities is, for example, the laser. The laser, the hard beam, iron beam. It will take us a year or two or three or whatever it takes to build the capability where they won't be able to launch even one rocket to Israel. Every single rocket will be exploded above Gazan skies. Israelis won't even get an alert. I mean, uh, you know, they will shoot and Israelis will continue with their life, everyday life. Everything will be dealt by laser. Uh, we, we took their ability to use tunnels. Yes. They are not able really to use UAVs. Uh, all that have left is the rocket, which even today uh, are not really effective. Uh, in, in hitting Israeli, we're almost able to really 90 something percent prevent this, but the problem is not the rockets hitting or not hitting. The problem is that the whole society is under threat. You have a, you know, alarm that people have to run to, and it's frightening and it frightens the children and everything. Well, if we can prevent that, if we can create a reality with this rocket, don't even, I'm not even able to cross a border. And in the speed of light, we destroy them above Gazan airspace. This will be a huge game changer, and we'll and we'll render Hamas completely irrelevant. And 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 in this sense, also Hezbollah. So, I think that this will be probably a better solution in, uh, for Israel than conquering one of Gaza again. It could have its uh, its risk, but. We thank you for your time. I know you need to go. Uh, if everyone can stay with us, we'll have some follow-up remarks. But we want to thank, thank uh, IDF Brigadier General in the Reserves, Amir Avivi, for joining us from his uh, visit to Washington right now. Safe travels, success there on your mission. And uh, we'll see you back in, uh, in Israel, General Avivi. All the best. Thank you very much. Thank you all. Thank, thank you very much. Just, uh, just want to let everyone know General Vivi spoke at, uh, he spoke up on Capitol Hill yesterday and then last night in an event by the ICEJ USA branch in Washington, Mark Israel's 75th anniversary. Uh, there, there was a bit of a celebration of the Abraham Accords. There were some Arab ambassadors there. Jason Greenblatt, a former official with the Trump administration helped put together Abraham Accords. He was keynote speaker and uh, were several other uh, government officials and other speaking General VV, our president, Dr. Jurgen Bueller, uh, and uh, they had a nice celebration of the 50, uh, 75th last night. I think uh, General VV will also be at the NRB, National Religious Broadcasters, next week where Jurgen will be there. Uh, so really trying to hit the states right now good message of solid support for Israel and celebrating 75 years of independence in this nation where Israel can once again defend itself. And it was quite remarkable uh, what happened uh, over the past week. Just to give you a little more background, there had been uh, uh, an escalation in tensions around Passover about a month ago, and Israel got hit by 30-some rockets from Gaza one day right before Passover, Arab Passover. 
then 34 rockets from South Lebanon fired by Hamas. Hezbollah has allowed Hamas to go recruit Palestinians there in South Lebanon to fire rockets for them. And then even the next day, six rockets from uh, an Islamist group or Iranian uh, troops in, uh, in Syria fired at Israel three different directions in three days in succession, sending the message to Israel, you're surrounded by all these uh, Iranian proxy militias uh, and a lot of rhetoric coming out of, of Ramadan at the end of April saying the resistance from, uh, against Israel is united, we're ready, Israel, you're surrounded. And then there was a, one of the leaders of this, the smallest uh, these terror militias here in, in Gaza, Palestinian Islamic Jihad, they're funded directly by Iran for the sole purpose of bleeding Israel, attacking, carrying out terror attacks. They don't have any real political agenda in, within Palestinian society of, say, being a rival to Hamas or Fatah. But uh, they, um, one of their leaders in the West Bank who recruit, recruits terrorists, plans terror attacks, he was in jail and he wanted uh, freed and he went on a hunger fast and it lasted 80 some days. The guy, you know, it lasted all those days and Israel was trying to feed him and trying to get him to eat again. He refused and he, he died. So uh, it was a little over a week ago that the Palestinian Islamic Jihad fired over 100 rockets from Gaza all in like just a couple hours. So you had 100 rockets coming into Israel from this uh, one terror militia that answers uh, directly to Iran, and Israel needed to, to maintain or build deterrence against them, but they waited a couple days, and when their actionable intelligence, when they knew where these three, the, the, the main military commanders of, the, of Islamic Jihad were, they struck them all within a couple minutes of each other. They were miles apart in their homes, wherever they were, and boom, boom, boom. They also lost members of their families. But if you're going to fire 100 rockets uh, against Israel, you shouldn't be sleeping at home with your wife and children. You should be somewhere else. And so Israel did, uh, you know, targeted them. And uh, it took a day or so for Islamic Jihad to sort of recover from that initial blow, and then they fired 1,500 rockets at Israel over the next four days, uh, and that was, by estimates, that was about a quarter of their um, their arsenal of, of rockets, uh, and about 20% of them, there a lot of our homemade, about 20% of those 1,500 landed inside Gaza. And in fact, some of the casualties in Gaza were from Islamic jihad rockets that were flawed, that uh, veered off course, uh, were duds, were malfunctioned, whatever. Within Israel, there was a, a lady that was killed, a rocket hit a home of a lady who was her paralyzed husband get to a bomb shelter. And uh, it was because the one of the Iron Dome batteries, uh, one of the rockets sent up to intercept the, the, um, the jihad rocket uh, didn't work. And so the home got hit, and it was quite a tragedy for a story. A lady trying to help her paralyzed husband, and she died. And then there was a, a, a worker from Gaza. He had, uh, he had a work permit to come from Gaza to work in Israel. Because of the rocket war, he was staying 
with his employer or whatever, and he got hit on a work site. Uh, they didn't have shelters, and so he was one of the. It was a a Gazan wor- Arab worker at a job site in Israel. One of the two people killed by Islam Jihad in this. A couple other uh, apartments damaged, but the way Israel took out six of the top military leaders of the Islamic Jihad militia was quite impressive, and you're you know, really wondering, has this uh, restored deterrence the way General Avivi was describing it the other day? And here he says he can't tell us, you know, but so much. But Israel apparently has incredible, incredible capabilities now integrating uh, artificial intelligence capabilities in computers in the digital world to take all the information coming in from all your surveillance, all your visuals, all the enemy, and helping even with the target selection, you still have to go through a process. Is that a priority target for now? Uh, are there civilians around it? Uh, you have to go through the, the check of the military uh, JAG Corps, the, the legal advisors and whatever. You still have a process, but they've been able to speed it up quickly. If you've been watching some of the war in Ukraine, it's almost at a snail's pace sometimes. It's back trench warfare. Israel is so, so far ahead of uh, so many nations and maybe even the U.S. in some ways in its ability to integrate everything on, on the battlefield because you're defending a certain space, the land of Israel, uh, and you've got it covered so well. Uh, and this thought of having the iron beam uh, this advanced uh, uh, a, a beam, a laser beam that takes down the rockets before they ever leave the territory in the enemy, whether it's Gaza or Lebanon, that's a few years away. And I think the question is, uh, coming out of this, is, you know, Iran, were they disappointed? Did they tell Hamas and Hezbollah to hold back this time? They're about to cross the nuclear threshold. You know, Iran's in a more long-term gain to get nuclear weapons and then threaten Israel under a nuclear umbrella. And so they want as many of these rockets still pointed at Israel without having to fire them. But if this iron beam is coming, does it mean you, you've got to use it or lose it? It's, does it actually, we're only two or three years away from developing and deploying on laser weapons that can really eliminate uh, the all these rockets that are pointed in Israel from Gaza, from Lebanon, from Syria, even from Iraq, even from Iran. Uh, does that mean that Iran will now try to use them before they are no longer an effective weapon against Israel? So we'll have to see how this plays out in the coming uh, months and, and years. But... Uh, as far as all the rocket wars we've had, I've been here through all all of the, the main ones uh, since the 2006, uh, uh, well, been here since 97, full-time, but since 2006, Second Lebanon War, where there were uh, thousands of rockets coming in from Lebanon for 34 days over the northern half of Israel, uh, that was pretty scary. Israel's come a long way since then. They deployed the Iron Dome in 2011 for the first time. 
uh, they, um, and since then it has been uh, able to give Israeli officials space to make decisions of what to do and to protect the civilian heartland uh, while Israel, the Israeli Air Force, especially uh, and the artillery units deal with specific threats within Gaza, uh, gives them time so that they don't have to order, you know, uh, a ground incursion, which could uh, involve a lot of casualties on the Israeli side. Uh, but these are some of the decisions, calculations. If you, if the Iron Dome, it's still effective, but if you've even got something uh, even better and especially cheaper to neutralize this rocket threat, that's really going to change um, the equation and, and really defang the Iranian threat in a lot of ways. So these next couple of years could really be critical. Iran's about to uh, cross the nuclear threshold, and but they also are about to lose their, their conventional rocket and mortar and missile threat against Israel through all these proxies. We'll see how this plays out. We ask you to pray for us. We're celebrating Jerusalem Day. It actually bit, begins tonight. It's the day, uh, the anniversary of Israel's reunifying the city of Jerusalem in 1967 in the Six-Day War in June of 67. Israelis mark it here with a flag march into the city. So far, just a few street scuffles in, in, the, uh, in the streets of the old city of Jerusalem. Nothing too bad. I think too out of the ordinary, but we pray it stays quiet. We know there are millions of Christians around the world praying for Israel now. Continue to pray for calm here. Continue to pray that that uh, somehow through the Lord's help, Israel would be able to neutralize the darts of the enemy, the arrows that would fly by net, day or night against uh, the Jewish uh, people here, or the Jewish state. Uh, we know God has brought this people back, not to be wiped out in some nuclear holocaust, but to brought them back to uh, gather them and redeem them to himself. Amen. So please be praying. Thank you for tuning in today to the ICEJ weekly webinar. Join us next week for the Isaiah 62 Global Prayer Gathering Wednesdays at 4 p.m. Israel time. And of course, next week on Thursday, 4 p.m. Uh, Jerusalem time, we'll join you again from our headquarters here in Jerusalem with another ICEJ weekly webinar. Thank you again for joining us. God bless you from Jerusalem.